0: Welcome to the Crowdmakers, inside the C-suite of sports and entertainment. The definitive podcast on the inner workings of the business side of professional sports, concerts, and live events. These are the people that are shaping the new landscape of the industry. The executives that are creating the new paradigm for live entertainment. These are the inside conversations you won't hear anywhere else. These are the Crowdmakers. Support for the Crowdmakers comes from ISBI 360, the digital training network that uses micro and spaced repetition to form new habits of success in sales, service, leadership, and more. Created by sports and entertainment industry experts for the industry. Learn more at isbi360.com. And now, here's your host for the Crowdmakers, Bill Gertine. Welcome once again to the Crowdmakers, it's Bill Gertine. and with me as a very special guest, I'm pleased to introduce the CEO and Secretary General of the U.S. Soccer Federation. He is Will Wilson. Will, welcome to the Crowdmakers.
1: Thanks, Bill. Nice to be here. Well,
0: you know, it's been a, a year for the record books for everyone, and so most everyone in sports can tell you where they were on that day in March where they first learned that things were going to be shut down, take us through where you were at that moment and what the situation was for you.
1: Yeah. So for me at the time we were living in Raleigh, North Carolina, or actually apex North Carolina. And I was in the process of uh, going through the transition, if you will, of, of being offered the job to be the CEO at us soccer and kind of that whole process you go through and things are kind of towards the end. And that was all happening at that time. And I remember that I was, uh, in indianapolis for the combine for the nfl combine in a in a food court and you know filled with people and and the, the pandemic was was sort of becoming very obvious at that point in time or becoming something that people were really thinking about into february into early march and i remember thinking to myself that i wonder if this would, if this is going to be like this in a few weeks you know if it's going to be filled with people and just sort of that that early part of it so it was a time of uh, you know i think of a lot of confusion a lot of um concern for people. And at that point in time, I was going through a job transition. So that was layered on top of it and, you know, a little bit challenging and and certainly a little bit of angst.
0: Probably made you think twice about being in the food court at the time. (laughs)
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Great. Well, that was just as you were being announced as the new CEO and secretary general of the USSF. And, And that announcement was made on March 23rd, just as COVID was shutting stuff down all over the world what sort of planning went to that, through that press conference for you? What, what sort of contingency, what, what were the conversations leading up to that?
1: Well, I mean, it was, it was unusual, certainly to, to start a job in the, you know, the beginning of a, of a pandemic. And, you know, Cindy Parlow Cohn is our president uh, lives in Chapel Hill. So we were actually together uh, in Chapel Hill when the press conference was, you know, was put together. And of course it was obviously over, over the telephone and uh, folks called in, but you know, again, uh, from a planning perspective, you know, it was a pretty normal press conference, but fortunately, we were able to be together and you know, uh, in in the same room as as that all uh, unfolded. But again, I think just the the uncertainty that we were all looking at that point in time and starting this job at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, created a a layer of challenges that I certainly hadn't anticipated uh, throughout the process.
0: Just amazing. You took over as CEO from Dan Flynn, who'd had the position for, gosh, nearly 20 years. At that time, certainly there were challenges to begin with, taking over for someone with that kind of tenure. But what additional challenges were were you met with just going from the get-go right into the office?
1: Well, you know, so first of all, the office was not the office. So you know, wow. the first, uh, uh, and, and still we're not all the way back in as, as most people are around the country. So for me, you know, I took over the job in a virtual environment. And that obviously was was very challenging and getting to know people, getting up to speed, uh, trying to create those relationships, uh, which are so aided by the ability to have just even short conversations with people, you know, in person. So trying to work through that, you know, be very intentional about uh, getting to know folks and getting up to speed at the same time in in that type of environment was was challenging. You know, for me, uh, I've got nothing but respect for Dan and the job that he's done. And he's been uh, a real assist for me along the way. i mean i I, I lead on on him for for guidance and and uh, and insight on things as we go. I'll call him every couple of weeks and just kind of pick his brains for two or three hours. he's He's very patient with me. um, uh, so he's been tremendous. and the, you know the staff as well, I think is just phenomenal. the the staff at u s soccer, that's one thing that's really come through clear for me over the last year. It's just how professional they are, how committed they are to the sport, and how much they care about where we're going. and so, It's been an easy transition in that regard, but I think very challenging the sense that we're not together, you know, and we're still not together. And that's something that we all continue to work through. Wow. Well, for
0: those who don't know the full scope and enormity of the USSF, you're the official governing body of soccer here in the U.S. Uh, You're a full member of FIFA and CONCACAF. You essentially govern every level of soccer here in the U.S. And that includes the international side, professional side, amateur side, uh, the U.S. men's and women's national soccer teams, major league soccer, youth organizations, even beach soccer, which I didn't know until I did the research for this, uh, as well as several major tournaments like the U.S. Open Cup and the She Believes Cup. Personally, Will, how do you keep track of all of that? Are, are there a spe- specific things that you've done from a time management perspective to balance all those responsibilities?
1: Well, you know, the other thing I would say is we're also a full member of the USOPC. Uh, you neglected to mention the NWSL, the Women's League. That Indeed, I did. Thank you. Purview And, you know, the Paralympic and Olympic teams as well. So there's there's a lot under the U.S. soccer, uh, you know, banner, if you will. Obviously, the pro leagues, including USL, which I'm not sure if you mentioned them either. They're, they're a tremendous organization, have run, you know, several leagues and academy structure. And, uh, you know, they're very uh, influential which will in the space as well. So they're all running their own businesses and our, you know, we sanctioned them. That's our, that's our role with the pro leagues. Um, you know, there's a lot, you know, and again, I really lean on, you know, our board on the folks and our staff who, uh, deal directly with these individual folks and entities, uh, for their direction and guidance. And as we've kind of worked this all through, but there is a lot to contend with. There's a lot on our, on all of our plates and being organized is something that, uh, you know that I that I really try to be and, and to try to be as organized as possible. And I'm I'm a big list guy. You know I like to cross things off my list. So, you know I I kind of up, get up every every Monday and, and put together my list for the week and all the things that that need to be addressed. And you know I just try to check things off and move on and and make sure that we're having a uh, conversations along the way. You know my dad used to tell me there's no problems only missed conversations. So I try to stick to that advice and as much as possible, uh, you know keep the conversations rolling
0: you were EVP and co-head of football for Wasserman, the global sports agency. Describe your role there a little bit for those who are listening and how that work may have helped you to prepare for this role.
1: Well, you know, in that role, I, I, I left uh, a role at MLS and, and some we had grown the practice to, you know, probably 80, 80 plus NFL clients, plus, you know, an assortment of coaches and, you know, administrators and, you know, in terms of how it helps me in this job, you know, I think one of the things I really learned in that role was the athlete perspective on things, you know, how their careers uh, kind of ebb and flow, uh, the challenges they have, their view of the world, you know, how important things like uh, injuries and medical attention and those types of things really play into their careers. Uh, so it kind of gave me a different perspective. You know, prior to that, I was always on the league and or team side of things, including internationally and domestic. So it just sort of a uh, I guess rounded out my skill set in terms of perspective.
0: Yes, I'm sure it did. Well, you know, revenue generation, always a topic of discussion, no matter who you are and where you are in, in business, but the pandemic has really taken a deep hit to sports in general. How much of a hit has soccer taken as a whole financially? And how long do you think it'll take for soccer to rebound to what we might know as pre-pandemic levels?
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly everyone has has felt the pain. I mean, we've we've seen many of the of the sports leagues. Uh, around the world and in this country and certainly at MLS level talk about the losses that their owners have has sustained over this period in time. So it's been you know significant. Um, I think we all feel that this year we're cautiously optimistic. We're starting to claw out of it, but it's still not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and I think it's going to take a little bit of time for folks to be, to really feel comfortable being back in stadiums in full capacities and kind of back to you know, quote unquote, normal. So you know we're we're taking baby steps, you know, back in that direction. I think we see that across the country. Um, but yes, yeah, so there's no question that last year was was uh, was financially very tough for everyone. Indeed.
0: Well, you were at MLS at Soccer United Marketing at the beginning of the boom years. We might call it the boom years uh, as they began, and and really things started to grow when you were there as EVP of International business and Special events. MLS has really been the envy of many other leagues in the world in terms of growth and development over that time. What are you most excited about the, for the future of MLS here in the states?
1: Well, I just I just think they've done you know Don and and the folks over at MLS have just done such a tremendous job. The owners across the league, the growth of the league. You know, I recall when you know Columbus was the first soccer-specific stadium. I mean, Lamar Hunt built that. You know, many years ago. And if you look around the landscape now, it's just phenomenal. Uh, the amount of infrastructure that's been built and, and funded and put into place around soccer in this country, MLS has, has led the way on that. Uh, in the last 25 years, it's it's such an incredible growth story and one I think that everyone in the country should be proud about. So, I, I'm really, really bullish, obviously, on their growth, but on soccer you know, in general. I'm bullish on the USL's growth, on the NWSL's growth, on the youth and adult games growth, on the whole Uh, ecosystem, I think soccer has such a huge potential uh, going forward. And it's, it's just exciting to be part of it.
0: Well, you're bilingual in English and Spanish. In fact, you got your MBA in Monterrey, Mexico. Uh, You ran NFL Mexico for a time for several years, even coordinated two NFL games at Estadio Azteca right there in Mexico city was being bilingual, a career goal of yours from the beginning. Is it, and is it something that you recommend to those who uh, you get counsel to?
1: Uh, it's that's an interesting question. And my my father actually grew up in Guatemala and was and so was bilingual from a from a very young age. And I remember him telling me that many of his early job opportunities, he was in the offshore oil construction business. So I have a sister born in Brazil, I have a brother born in Venezuela. And so many of those opportunities for him were were driven by the fact that he spoke Spanish and Portuguese. And so they they had no one else to send down there. He had to go down there and figure it out. And so I think that did stri- strike a chord in me a little bit. Uh, I, w- I won't say I, I was hyper-focused on that, but I knew that it would certainly be advent- advantageous, let's put it that way. And so when the opportunity came for us to go to Mexico, I think part of that was because I actually lived in Mexico City with my parents, for eighth, ninth, and 10th grade. So there was some sort of a connection. And when we went to live there and I was running the business down there, um, you know, it was a great experience. And I, that's when I really learned my Spanish over that five-year period, um, you know, was was put in a position where I needed to learn it, and I was very receptive to it, and, and really enjoyed the opportunity to to add that to uh, to my skill set, if you will. So, I do think it's advantageous. I, I think that anyone in, who has a, another language in their quiver uh, has an advantage, and it's also a great way to to culturally uh, understand other countries as well, from the perspective of those folks who live there.
0: Too bad. Well, while things seem to be clearing up here in the States, international play is still a major issue right now with all of the various degrees of COVID infection around the world as that governing body of soccer. How are you addressing that with both the men's and the women's international teams?
1: Well, we developed, you know, throughout the, the early part of the pandemic uh, at a federation level, we developed play on protocols really for the soccer ecosystem and thinking about how you can return to play generally and sort of the safety guidelines you should, you should follow. And, you we know, we you know, made this into a, a pretty comprehensive campaign that we pushed out to all of our members. But um, then, in relative to our national teams, obviously those environments have to be uh, incredibly safe. You have people traveling in from different club teams for a moment in time to be in a camp and then participate in international event and then go back to their market. So the protocols that we put in place, our medical team put in place, are phenomenal. Uh, you know the the testing that we do. The, the rate of positivity was almost, uh, you know, it was very, very small. I mean, almost non-existent. And that created a lot of confidence in the clubs that uh, where our, our players play on both the women's, men's and women's side to to come in and, and know that we were going to have the right environment, that they were going to be uh, tested and handled in the correct way and be able to go back to their markets without any issues. So it's incredibly important, uh, and we spent a lot of time and, and effort in it. Well,
0: certainly the Olympics in Tokyo coming up are one of the more immediate needs to make sure that things are safe. Uh, How concerned are you of the safety of our teams as they go over?
1: Well, again, I think it's just it's taking these same protocols that we've all learned, not just ourselves. But the sporting industry in general has really been focused on this for the last uh, 12 months and how to keep players safe and keep them in the right environment. So I know the folks at the USOPC and the Olympics in general are are really taking that very seriously and they're going to have the right uh, protocols in place and, and manage it appropriately.
0: Very good. Well, we have high hopes for our men's and women's national teams. Uh, the national team's reputation is still a little scarred from not making the final round of qualifying back in the 2018 World Cup. It was the first time the U.S. did not qualify since 1986. How much responsibility do you feel personally about getting the men's team back to competing for a World Cup?
1: Well, look, we we obviously... Uh, want to make sure our men qualify for the World Cup and have the opportunity to, to show themselves at their best to do so. And, and I think more importantly, the players want that Bill. I mean, they want to go out and, and, and perform and get back into the World Cup and, and, and put themselves back in, in that sort of contention. So I think all of us in the soccer space uh, are, are excited about uh, you know the men's team, the the depth that we have, the young players, uh, that, are, that have come through and, and, you know, are really showing their their skills, not only domestically, but also over in Europe. Uh, so, you know, I think there's a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, optimism around, you know, where we're going on that front. And, and certainly I know that they, as a, as a player group, want, want to perform. Sure.
0: Well, on the flip side, the women's national teams had incredible success. They've got three Olympic gold medals. They're coming off their fourth Women's World Cup win in 2019, an enormously popular cadre of players. And yet the players came out with a lawsuit in March of 2019 claiming pay inequities and inferior support and working conditions. I mean, the lawsuit was settled in December and we, and you have made significant moves to equal the playing field. What is the status of your relationship with the women's team today?
1: Well, first of all, they are the best in the world and have been for quite some time. And, and we want to continue that trend as we go forward. I mean, phenomenal players, uh, obviously incredibly dedicated to the sport and to their, you know, to their abilities and, you know, have nothing but tremendous respect for all they do, just like on the men's side. Um, You know, what we, what we did in December is that we, uh, we had some title seven claims that were open, that we settled with the women uh, that were left open in the summary judgment. And we were able to uh, come to a resolution on those. And those were just recently certified by the, you know, by, by the California court. So I think that, that's been really good because the effort that we went through to work together to settle those claims and get those to a spot that we all felt good about is a, is a great sort of step for us as we go forward and a good relationship builder for as we go forward and as, as we tackle future challenges.
0: We'll be back for the second half right after this. Hi, this is Bill Gertine. I've been training the ticket sales departments of sports and entertainment for almost 20 years, and I love what I do but everywhere I went, the story was always the same. We loved what you did. You got us fired up. But after a while, we kind of lost the spark and we went back to the same old, same old. Well, not anymore. ISBI 360 is the first and only digital training network created exclusively for the specific long-term career needs of sports and entertainment professionals. Our seven different unique certification programs include the fundamentals of success in the industry, like ticket sales, sponsorships, social media, customer service, and leadership, all trained by industry experts like Brett Zelaski, Debbie Nolan, Misha Sher, and Seth Rabinowitz. ISBI 360 uses a unique four-stage learning process, including cutting-edge micro-learning videos, live recorded role plays, live coaching from industry experts, and an ongoing reinforcement program to make sure the learning sticks and forms the habits that your people need to grow and excel faster. Check out the two-minute demo at isbi 360.com slash demo. That's ISBI360.com slash demo. Building a better team starts with better training. Check out what's different about ISBI 360 today. Diversity, equity, and inclusion continue to be vital topics around the world. What are you most proud of with what USSF is doing right now in furthering those initiatives within soccer?
1: Well, we you know, I think like a lot of businesses. Uh, you know, We were very, and I think also from the reality that I was new and, and trying to get up to speed on what our organization was and how we operate, there was a lot of internal looking activities over the last year. And one of those obviously was around DEI, making that a, one of our, uh, you know, our, our core principles in the federation. We articulated our principles and values over the course of this year, went through a process to do that. And one of our core principles is championing diversity, equity, inclusion. So we've made that a core tenet of the federation. Um, and we've done a number of things to, to address that. I mean, we have an internal DEI council that we put together. We've hired into the DEI space on the HR side. Uh, we went through a, a, an internal assessment, see where we stand on DEI and, and to create a roadmap of how we can go forward uh, in a more productive way. Uh, we're going through a study right now that Cindy is leading uh, on minority participation in the sport and what the barriers are to minority participation in soccer so that we can identify those and figure out a way to to challenge them and, and, and create more paths for, for participation. So we have put a lot on the table. And we have a lot of projects in the works right now, and that's going to continue to be really, really important for us as we go forward. We have some pretty hefty goals over the next 10 years, and our mission is to make soccer the preeminent sport in the United States. And we really understand that if we're going to have any chance of reaching those goals in that mission, we're going to have to embrace DEI uh, in, a, in a very strong way along the way, And then be a leader, quite frankly, with our members and all of our organizations uh, in doing that.
0: You bet. Well, I'm sure a lot of people will be very happy to hear that. That's good stuff.
1: Well, many people are already anticipating
0: the World Cup in 2026, which will be co-hosted very uniquely by the U.S., Canada and Mexico. Uh, with your ties to Mexico and the U.S., this should be kind of interesting. You've got to be pretty excited about this. Yet most people really aren't aware of how big a deal this really is. Can can you give us a perspective on how big that is and what sh- people should know about it?
1: Well, I mean, look, the World Cup is just – that is the biggest sporting event in the world, and it's going to be uh, in our geography. I mean, this will be the first time that it's been hosted in three countries. There's been times in the past where it's been hosted in two countries, so this is a first – in that regard with Canada the US and Mexico as all as host nations it's also the first time that the field will be increased to 48 teams it's usually 32 teams so we're going to have a bigger field across those three countries so it's just going to really take over the country over that period of time uh, there's many of us who remember the 94 World Cup and the impact that had uh, in the United States I think this is going to be just a huge event uh, massive event for us and, and something that's going to be a real tentpole pole moment, if you will, for soccer in this country. And, and I think it'll have a huge impact on the growth of the game. On the back end of that, <clears throat> in 2028, we have the LA Olympics. And obviously, soccer will be you know, a, a featured point or sport in, in, in that event as well. So there's there's a lot of uh, really important moments that are going to be happening in our geography around the game. You bet.
0: Have the sites been located for that? Or are they still under negotiation and, and uh, uh, site selection process?
1: That process is still undergoing right now.
0: I just wanted to know for anybody that's in a market that they think they'd be able to see a a game (laughs) or two that uh, may work out well. So so many trending storylines now beyond the things we've already touched on, certainly the COVID virus, the DEI, many other things. Are there any other trends or storylines in sports and entertainment that you're personally watching closely like right now?
1: Well, I think there's there's a number of things that, are, and I'm not going to profess to be an expert in them. So I'll start with that, but I think are interesting. You know, one is esports, the proliferation of esports. Uh, that's really growing, and and uh, the views around that and the participation in it is something that uh, I think we all have to to keep an eye on and, and make sure that we're able to to participate in. You know, I think. Uh, Seating trends or capacities with stadiums. So I think that's something for us all to be keep an eye on as, as we kind of come out of the pandemic. Does that change? You know, are we, are we at full capacities? You know, how long is that going to take? I think that's something that we need to keep an eye on that has an impact, obviously, on revenue for all of us. Um, globalization, I think, is interesting, and particularly in the soccer space. You know, it's just a lot easier these days. And I'll, I'll put that together with fan engagement. You know, it's just there's a lot of new ways to engage fans, you know, leveraging social media, influencers, storytelling, that's making the globalization of sports generally, uh, I think really rapidly accelerate. And so competing in not just your country, but across the globe for attention is something that I think everyone in the sports space is, is probably thinking about. And, um, you know, and I guess one other one I, I would mention is, is, big data, you know, AI, data analytics, and the impact that that may have or will have likely on, you know, on things like scouting or, you know, how you coach in the future. I think that's an interesting space. And again, I don't profess to be an expert in any of these areas, but there are things that, uh, you know, that I, that I think are interesting to watch
0: some of the things happening in soccer that are really almost more futuristic in scope or soccer appears to be taking the lead has been that of biometrics and actually taking temperatures and heart scans and and heart rates and things uh with some uh, probes and things that have been attached to people's bodies through there has there been any discussion about furthering some of those as we go forward in sports
1: well i think that kind of ties back to you know one of the topics of interest is, you know, the data analytics, AI, and how it all kind of ties back to, you know, to, that's a big field and there's a lot of areas that that could impact. I think it impacts certainly players, you know, wearable technology, that type of thing. I always felt that, you know, I was in the racing industry as well for a, a few years of my career and, uh, and that would have been, you know, in the early 2000s, and I always felt that racing has been on the cutting edge of that data, you know, the they, they track what's happening in the cars, uh, the use of the, the, the analytics, they, they build it into the broadcasts, you know, so they were sort of at the forefront of it. And I, I do think it's going to have a, a bigger and bigger, uh, you know, role in just all sports going forward. Sure. Given all that's gone on,
0: what do you think this unique situation in time has given the industry, perhaps an opportunity to do, or maybe to be that may never come again? Is there a window that you see right now that exists to change or improve something right now?
1: Well, I think, uh, you know, I think that I've, I've certainly felt this and, and I think that I've seen this with other, uh, not just in the sports industry, but just around all businesses, is that this has really created an opportunity for folks to get off the road and really plan and be sort of internally focused and, and think about their businesses and what to do when we kind of come out of this. Um, and I've had lots of conversations with people in that vein, you know, and, and it's interesting because right now, you know, I'm fully vaccinated, you know, and I'm, I'm seeing my own travel calendar start to kind of uh, pop up again, you know, in a way that uh, certainly wasn't even on my mind, you know, even two months ago. So I'm starting to see this kind of come out of it in that regard. And I think the other interesting thing that's happening is that and we've seen it in soccer and that so many of the events that were canceled last year are being pushed into this next Calendar or fiscal year for us. You know, we we hear about stadiums, for example, with concerts that were postponed are now being, you know, accelerated and, and jammed into stadiums. So I think this is going to be a kind of a, uh, just a, a massive opening up, if you will, of, of events, you know, over, over the next 12 months. Um, and we're all going to be back into, you know, hopefully into kind of a more normal uh cadence which is going to require you know being back on the road and you know your the way that we work is going to be a little bit different than it has been over the last year so i think that i think about that a little bit because i think this has given us a little bit of a time to all of us to press pause and think about things a little bit you know for me it's been a little bit different because i was starting a a new job in the pandemic so it's been more about getting up to speed but you know i I think it's it's an interest it's been an interesting moment in time in that regard very
0: good and a new city you moved to chicago
1: Yes, we did. We moved to the North Shore of Chicago, so uh, certainly the weather here is not as uh, as uh, sunny as, uh, as North Carolina, but it's, it's been great. We're, we're happy to be here.
0: That's great. Well, I, I wrap up each of the sessions that I do with some rapid fire questions that are kind of fun and lighthearted. So the first thing that comes to your mind when I ask each of these, are you, are you game? Let's do it. All right. Your favorite binge watch during the pandemic?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, what did I watch? I watched a lot of stuff, probably Endeavor.
0: Wow. Okay. Besides sports, the one thing you've missed most during COVID.
1: Travel. Mm-hmm. The be
0: board place. game you thought you'd never play again that you played
1: in 2020. Oh, Monopoly for sure.
0: <laughs> That's been a lot of people. I'm very surprised <laughs> is the number that was there. Uh, favorite musical artist on your workout mix.
1: Anything from the nineties, any kind of indie grunge from the nineties. Cool.
0: Favorite sports team that you have not worked for?
1: The Indianapolis Colts.
0: Of course. Why would I of course why would I think that good choice? Uh, the restaurant you've ordered takeout from more than any other during the pandemic.
1: Any Indian food restaurant. We've tried them all. Cool. The favorite comedian or comedian? Oh, uh, probably Fluffy.
0: Okay. Interesting choice. Uh, favorite thing about Chicago now that you're there as a resident
1: spring is beautiful. It's a really nice time of year in the lake. Indeed.
0: The biggest hurdle you have to overcome in the next six months.
1: Uh, there are a lot. We'll put it at that.
0: <laughs> okay. And then finally one bold prediction that you would have for sports and entertainment going forward.
1: Uh, you know, again, I think, uh, esports and AI and data, big data. I think those, I'm not, I'm not going to make any specific prediction, but I think those are going to start to play a bigger role in, in our daily lives.
0: Very good. Well, you've been very gracious with your answers and your time today. Will Wilson, CEO and Secretary General of the U.S. Soccer Federation. Thank you so much for taking time here on The Crowdmakers.
1: Very good. Appreciate
0: it. If you enjoyed the program, please like us, share us with those you know, and hit subscribe on the podcast, and we'll let you know when another new episode is dropped. Your positive comments will help keep the Crowdmakers on the air. We'd be grateful for your five-star review. Got someone you'd like to hear as a guest on the Crowdmakers? Let us know, and we'll do our best to reach out to them. Drop us a note at info at isbi360.com. That's info at isbi360.com. Support for the Crowdmakers comes from ISBI 360, the first and only digital training network for sports and entertainment professionals. Check out the two-minute demo at isbi360.com slash demo. That's isbi360.com slash demo. Building a better team starts with better training. Our chief engineer of the Crowdmakers is Ken Marinelli. Sean Quinn is our director of operations. Mark Yazowitz is the digital platform guru. And the executive producer of The Crowdmakers is Doug Quinn. I'm Bill Groutin. Until next time, thanks for listening, and so long for now. This is The Crowdmakers on
1: the C-Suite Radio Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.